Uh, well, uh, for the past few months, we've been uh, looking at the Bible as one large story. And, and, and you got to kind of think back a long time ago because we started off with Genesis uh, and, and we talked about the creation story and the fall of man. Uh, and we moved from there into uh, Exodus and, and Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. Uh, and then we talked about the promises that God gave the prophets about the coming Messiah that was going to bring about the Savior. And basically what we're trying to do with that is kind of show that the Bible uh, is not a bunch of disconnected stories, but is one giant narrative all pointing to one singular event. And as we're looking at this uh, idea, we're getting close to that big event, uh, which will be in a couple of weeks on Easter. And, and it's all pointing to Jesus, and that's what we uh, want to kind of point out. Now, my question as we're doing this is, uh, we look at this re- 2,000 years uh, separated from Jesus, uh, but we have the same Old Testament that Jesus and his, uh, his uh, contemporaries had. And so if, if we can see in the Old Testament these stories that are pointing to Jesus, how did they view Jesus? You know, if they were living in the time of Jesus and they saw Jesus doing all these things that the prophets said the Messiah would do, what was their reaction and what we kind of see uh, in the story of Jesus uh, is there's really two reactions. There's one where people are really excited. And they're like, yes, you are the Messiah. You are the one we are looking for. We're, we're excited about this. And then we also see that a lot of people were angry with Jesus. And when we look at their anger, we kind of see that the reason why their anger is because Jesus is coming as a Messiah that they really weren't expecting. And Jesus, in a lot of ways, was saying, you're doing this wrong, you got to change. And the religious leaders, they were the ones that got really angry the most, and they didn't think that they needed to change. And so with Jesus coming in, he's doing all these things, and people are saying he's the Messiah, and yet Jesus isn't one of them, and Jesus is telling them, you need to change to be more like what God's wanting you to be. It just kind of left them in a place where they really didn't like Jesus. Uh, Well, John, when he's writing this gospel, he's writing it in an effort to show that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he tells us about seven signs that Jesus did to prove that he was the Messiah. And so we're kind of going through that in our series, The Grave Robber. Uh, We're looking at these seven signs. Today we're going to be in the sixth sixth sign, uh, and it is found in John chapter 9. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you uh, to find John chapter 9. You can find a, a pew Bible in front of you if you do not bring one, or you can use your smartphone or tablet uh, and find a Bible app on there. And and as you're doing that, uh, there was a really good preacher once said that you should always uh, start off with your context before you get into your content. Um, And so that's what we're going to do, kind of setting the scene for John chapter 9. If you remember, we've been talking about the three Jewish festivals, And, and there were three pilgrimage festivals that the Jews went to Jerusalem for. And, and John, for most part, will, will picture Jesus doing stuff on these festivals. Uh, and so just as a quick recap, uh, the first festival uh, was the festival of KP. The first festival is the festival of... Oh, Passover. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> he wrote it down in Sunday school class. So uh, the next one is... Pentecost, and the third one is 
Uh, there, there we go, Tabernacles. So uh, we, were ta- we just talked about this in, in Sunday school, and, and so he said he was going to be ready, but Kalina was talking to him, so. <laughs> and no, you're not. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Anyway, yeah, so the three festivals, uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, and, and they, they kind of revolved around the agricultural cycle. Uh, Passover and Pentecost, uh, they were uh, Feast of Harvest, and, and Tabernacles uh, was the end of the harvest, okay? Once everything was done, they would celebrate the Tabernacles, and this is where uh, they built a tent and lived in it for a day, so, or for a week, not a day, and, and it would have been a fun festival to be a part of, all right? And, and so we're in September, October. This story in John chapter 9 actually starts all all the way back in John chapter 7. Uh, and we're told that Jesus visits Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. So he's at the end uh, of fall. And then we're told that he stays all the way through uh, the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah uh, now, nowadays. And that's in December. And so he's there for a good while, a couple months. All right. And, and basically, the entire time he is discussing and talking with the religious leaders, and the religious leaders don't like what they're hearing from Jesus. Uh, it really can be summed up at the very end of John chapter 8 uh, with these verses. Uh, John chapter 8, uh, verse 50-ish, 57, uh, says uh, that the religious leaders are talking. They say, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And not to get into the conversation in detail, but Jesus is talking to him, and eventually he says, hey, Abraham waited to see my days, and, and I've seen Abraham. And, and so they look at Jesus, and they're like, you're not 50 years old. And Abraham, he was like 2,000 years before Jesus. And so they're kind of confused, and they're kind of mocking Jesus here, like, you've seen Abraham? And, Abraham, and Jesus' response to them is to look at them and say, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And this is significant. Uh, there's, there's a lot of people that say Jesus never claimed to be God. But if you read this chapter, if you read this verse, there's no way to get out of it that Jesus is claiming to be God. We talked about a number of months ago, Moses uh, being called by God to go back to Egypt to set the Israelites free to take them to the promised land. And that happens with a, an incident on a mountain in a burning bush. And out of the burning bushes, God is talking to Moses. And Moses looks at God and says, God, who do I say sent me? You know, they're going to want to know. They're, they're going to ask that question. Who do I say you are? And God says, you tell them that I am. I am has sent you. And the Israelites, Jesus, when he says this, before Abraham was born, I am, the Israelites understood what he was doing. Because their reaction at the very end of John chapter 8 is to pick up stones and stone him. So they understood what Jesus was saying. Jesus was claiming to be God. And so that's kind of the conflict that's happening. In, in chapter 9, uh, right after all of this, Jesus is still in Jerusalem, and Jesus is still teaching, and Jesus is still doing miracles. And it's a very volatile situation that we find ourselves in. And so this is how, how this story starts, this miracle starts. In verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 1, it says, As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God may be displayed in him. Uh, as long as it is day, we must uh, do the works of him who has sent me. Night is coming uh, when no one can work. While I, why, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
All right, so this is, this is the start of this story. Into this very volatile situation, Jesus and his disciples are walking along. They come across a man who is born blind. Uh, this is actually the only time in the Gospels that we're told that the person that Jesus is going to heal was born this way. Uh, there's a couple of times in Acts where it happens, right, but this is the only time in the Gospel. This is going to be something new, as we will see. Right, and, 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 and this guy seems to be well-known. Right, and what I kind of picture happening is this guy has lived around Jerusalem most of his life, and, and, and people, as they come to Jerusalem for the various feasts, they see this guy, he's always begging, he, he needs money uh, because he can't work in any other way in that society, um, and so they're, they're, they see him all the time. And so the disciples, they recognize this guy. Uh, they, they realize, hey, I know this guy, we know his backstory. Jesus, we want to ask you a question. Jesus, who sinned that he is suffering? And that seems kind of weird to us, but it's kind of the theology of the Old Testament. A lot of times in the Old Testament, you see that people thought that you suffered if you sinned. And the only reason you suffered is because you had sinned. And so if, if you uh, were suffering, you had to figure out how you ascended in, in a certain way. And so uh, what happens, that, that often left the rabbis, the teachers of the day, with a very tough situation. What happens if a person is born suffering, such as being blind, such as not being able to walk, such as with certain diseases, if they are born in this situation, someone had to sin who? And so it was a big debate among the rabbis of the day. The rabbis, most of them said, well, probably the parents. All right? The parents have sinned, and, and they can be said to be suffering with a child with a disability. All right? That's at least in their culture mindset. Okay? And, and so, so maybe the parents had sinned and it caused, this was their punishment, this child. All right? But what happens if you have a parent that is a good godly person but yet still has a child that's born into suffering? When that happens... Right? And, and the rabbis recognize this, and so what, what is the solution? If, if suffering means someone has sinned, who sinned for this? And so some of the rabbis, they got together and said, well, maybe the child sinned while it was still in the womb. That sounds weird to us, but that's what they thought. And so it was a big debate. Can this possibly happen? And so when the disciples come to Jesus, they're asking a question that they don't know the answer to and that a lot of people are talking about. And they say, who is the sinner? Was it his parents or was it him? And Jesus' response is, it was neither. See, suffering, uh, if we understand biblically, suffering doesn't always happen because you have sinned. You know, sometimes you suffer because other people sin. And the best example I can give of this, the best one that we as Americans can understand, is that of uh, someone that drives while they're drunk. See, drunkenness in the Bible is a sin. And someone that drives drunk, oftentimes uh, we see stories about them wrecking their cars or wrecking into someone else, and that other person gets severely hurt. Right, did that person that was severely hurt sin? No, it was the person that was driving drunk because he was drunk. And so sometimes we suffer because other people are sinning. But sometimes we just suffer because of the world in which we live in is broken. You know, God, when he created the world, we're told that he created it good. But when we look around, do we see goodness in everything? No. 
And the reason we don't is because the world has been subjected to fertility because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And when they sinned, they broke the world in a very real way. And so, yeah, sometimes suffering happens because of the world which we live. And it's unfortunate, but it's, it's the way it is. And so this man, he's not suffering because his parents sinned, nor because he sinned while he was still in his mother's womb. All right? He's suffering because of the world. And Jesus says he is suffering because God is going to do something awesome. And this is what God does in verse 6. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he said, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked the blind man where Jesus is. Okay, just remember, just think about that for a second. All right, they asked him, and he said, I don't know. And so they brought to the Pharisees the man who was born blind. And so what Jesus does is he decides to make some mud and put it on the guy's eyes. Now, that seems really weird to us. How many of you would let someone put mud on their eyes? All right, it's not comfortable usually, and, and yeah. But this is something that we have to understand about that society. You see, uh, saliva, spit, uh, was considered to have some healing properties. All right, and, and it was one of those things that, that they had books about. Uh, and it seems kind of weird, but it's just what, how it was. And so there's medicinal properties. And if someone was famous, their spit was more uh, medically useful than someone who was just an average Joe. All right, and so uh, we see this in various stories. We see this, there's a, there's a uh, first century historian by the name of Tacitus. Uh, he wrote a story about uh, the emperor Vespasian going to Alexandria and Egypt to visit. And when he gets off the boats at Alexandria, there's these two guys that come up to Vespasian. And they, one of them had an illness of the eyes. Uh, we're not really told what that means. And another one had an illness of the hand. And they come to Vespasian, they get on their knees, and they say, Vespasian, emperor, will you you please spit in my eyes and will you step on my hand? And Vespasian's answer was no. And, and they continued to beg until eventually Vespasian said okay and he spit in the one guy's eyes and he stepped on the other guy's hands and Tacitus tells us that instantly they were cured of whatever disease they had. Uh, Pliny, another author of this time, has a whole book on different ways you can use spit to bring about healing depending upon what your ailment was. And so Jesus, he, what we see here is he's using his spit, not because he has to, right, but because he's using a common idea of that time to bring about healing, to bring comfort to this man. Right? The reason why he lets him put mud on his eyes is because that's what you did to bring healing. And so Jesus uses this method uh, to, to, to comfort this man in order to be able to heal him uh, the way he heals him. Uh, and so the man goes, he washes uh, off the mud, uh, and then we get something that I think is very interesting in this story. 
Right? And it tells us something very interesting about Jesus. See, the man, he comes home, and he's like, guys, look, I can see, I can see, and he's really excited. Right? I just picture, I mean, if you've been, never been able to see before in your life, and you finally are able to see all the colors that, that are out there, how excited would that be? I mean, he's, he's probably jumping up and down, and the guys that are around him are like, are you really that guy? I mean, their response is to look at him and say, you know, you're... You just look like him. You're not really Ted or whatever this guy's name was. Right? That's not you. And he insists, I am the man. I am. I can see. I was blind. Jesus healed me. It's awesome. And they're questioning whether or not this is really the guy. Why are they questioning that? The only reasonable explanation as to why they don't believe that this man is Ted is because they ignored Ted their entire lives. Yes, they had seen him begging. And yes, maybe they gave them some money here and there. But other than that, they never talked to this man. And yet Jesus has compassion on someone whom the world deemed as worthy of being ignored. And so for a moment, I just want to ask this question. Do we ignore people that the world says it's okay to ignore? And do we do this? When you're driving in Colombia and you see the person on the side of the street holding up a sign asking for money because they're homeless, what is your response? But that's our world's society of it, right? We ignore them. We continue driving on. We might throw a bucket change here and there for them, but do we talk to them? Do we learn that this is Ted? What does Jesus do? He stops what he's doing and he has compassion on this person that the rest of the world can't even decide if this is really the man. I mean, how, how are we any different than these people? That's just something you guys have to think about. That's not the point of this sermon, but that's something to think about there. All right, well, they bring him to the religious leaders because they can't decide if this is really the guy that was born blind that's been begging his entire life. They can't come to a conclusion. They, they're fighting with each other. Oh, yes, he is. No, he's not. Yes, he is. So they take him to the people that should know, and that's the religious leaders. And here's what they do. Now, on the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the eyes of the man was a Sabbath. So we'll just stop there for a second. Right, we've seen a couple of miracles ago. Jesus performed a miracle on the Sabbath, and it caused a big fit amongst all the leaders. And it's going to be one here. See, the Sabbath was a day you were not allowed to work. And Jesus, he did two things wrong on this day. He made mud. All right, You weren't allowed to spit on the ground on the Sabbath. All right, And he made mud with his eyes, and he put it on him, and he healed the man. And healing on the Sabbath, unless it was a matter of life and death, was not allowed. So, if you will, if you were on the Sabbath day in this time period and your arm came out of socket or your hip came out of socket, you had to deal with it for an entire day until someone could come and put it in after the day was over. Or say you broke your arm. You don't get to set it until after the Sabbath day. I mean, this was the rules in which they had made. 
And so when they hear that this man has been healed, they're going to go crazy because it's the Sabbath. No one's allowed to work on the Sabbath. And so in verse 15, we read, Therefore the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. He said, You put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. And the Pharisees said, This man is not from God. He broke the Sabbath. And others, and others said, But how can a sinner do a miracle? You see, they, they have this big argument, this, this, this preconceived idea of what God does. And because God was not fitting into their preconceived idea, they didn't know what to do. The argument was only people from God can do miracles. And so some people are like, Jesus just did a miracle. He has to be from God. And others are like, no, no, no. He broke the Sabbath. He can't be from God. Those are the arguments here. And these people are are trying to figure this out. Miracles, they confirm the messengers that God sent. They are confirming the message, and we see that throughout the Bible. We see it with Noah. Noah is asked to build a big ark, and as he's building this boat to survive a giant flood, he's pronouncing judgment on the world. He says, God's going to destroy you, and the people probably laughed at him until the rain started coming down and the waters came up. And God proved through a miracle that Noah was his messenger and that Noah had a message from God. We see it in the life of Moses over and over and over again, miracle after miracle, God saying, this is the one I've chosen to lead Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. And he has to do it over and over and over again because people don't get the idea that you you have to listen to God. We see it in the life of Elisha. We see it in the life of Elijah, prophets that God sent to Israel to tell them to turn back to God. And when they didn't, God said, here's a miracle to prove that they are telling you the truth time after time after time. And here's Jesus doing a miracle, and the Israelites can't decide if it's even a miracle. I mean, this is what the Pharisees do in verse 17. They, they turned to the blind man and said, what do you have to say? It was your eyes that he opened. The man said, he is a prophet. I mean, this guy's been going to church his entire life. He can't see, so he's been listening his entire life. And his entire life, he's been told if there's miracles, it's because it's a prophet of God. And so here he is blind, and now he can see, and his only response is, this is a prophet. And their response to that is, they don't believe him. In fact, they don't even believe that he was born blind. And so they call in their parents, and he says, is this your son? Is he the one that was born blind? How did he come to be able to see? And the parents do Parenting 101, the greatest job as a parent, okay? They come to the religious leaders, and they say, yes, he was born blind. How he can see, we don't know. You ask him, and they did that because they're afraid of the Pharisees. So what they do, parents, is they toss their kids under the bus, all right? They say, here, you ask him, all right? We're not touching this. Because they're afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue, which was big in that society. Right? And that's just what they do here. And so, uh, starting in verse 23, they demand that this man tell the truth. Give glory to God. Tell us your truth. What really happened? And the man's response in verse 25 is great. He says, whether he is a sinner, whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I do not know, but this I do know. I was blind, but now I see. This guy, he, he's excited. He's happy. He's ready to praise God because it's a hallelujah moment. He was blind, 
Now he can see, and that's all he really knows. And here these guys are questioning whether he was even blind in the first place. Imagine with me for a moment that you just got a job promotion. And it paid significantly more than what you're currently getting. How excited would you be? How many people would you want to share that with? And what if, as you're sharing it, all the people turn at you and look at you and say, you know what? I think you've always been doing that job. You didn't really get a job promotion. You didn't deserve that job promotion. The boss, that, he just has your as a favorite. I mean, they just turn this exciting moment into a very negative situation. I mean, that's what this guy is experiencing. He's really happy. He's wanting to praise God, and yet they're turning it into a negative situation because they don't want to believe in Jesus as Messiah. And so they continue to ask him. They say, how did you come to see again? He's already told them twice. How did you come to see again? And he explains it again. And he says, do you want to be Jesus' disciples too? And they're like, no, we're Moses' disciples. We don't even know where Jesus comes from. And so the man says this in verse 30. He says, now this is remarkable. You don't know where Jesus comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to godly persons who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And the logic that the Pharisees are following, the logic that says only people from God can do miracles, and since Jesus is not from God, he couldn't have done a miracle, he turns that logic in on them and says, if only people who do miracles are from God and Jesus did a miracle, he must be from God. And the Pharisees' response is, you've been steeped in sin since birth. And they kick him out. What a response. I mean, these guys, they, they know their Old Testament like the back of their hands. They know the stories that the Messiah is supposed to do and what he's going to do to prove that he's from God. And yet, here it is right in front of their face, and their response is no. When John shares stories of Jesus' miracles, he talks about teachings that Jesus gives. And so Jesus uh, gives a teaching starting in verse 35. When he hears uh, that the man had been thrown out, he finds him and he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, the man asked. Tell me that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And the man said to him, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And here is the point of this miracle that Jesus is trying to teach. There are many times in this world where we feel like we can see, but the reality is, is we're blind. The Pharisees, these religious leaders, they thought they knew the way to God. And the other gospel writers will call them blind guides leading blind people. And if you just think about that for a moment, a blind person leading a blind person to some place, that's just disaster written all over it. 
And yet this is exactly what it is. The religious leaders are blind. They do not understand where God is. They do not understand how God works. They do not understand where God is leading his people. And here they are, the ones teaching all these blind people to follow them. And it leads to nowhere. And yet Jesus is standing here saying, I am the light of the world. And he gives this man physical sight. But Jesus does more than that. He gives us spiritual sight as well. He is the sight giver. And a question I have to ask as a warning to us is this. Are we blind? I mean, for many of us, we've been Christians for a long time. Are we still blind to the plight of the world, to those who desperately need Jesus? When they come in the doors, are we blind to them and angry that they're here? When we talk about Jesus to the world, are we just blind to it all? Or do we see Do we see how God's working? Are we willing to look at the signs that are right in front of our face and maybe, just maybe, admit that we got it wrong? See, we have to be people willing to admit, willing to study the Word, willing to look at the world, willing to look for how God works, because God doesn't fit into a nice little box. God, He is moving. And He's doing marvelous things in this world. And we cannot expect him to do what we want him to do. We have to be open to the light that is shining. Are we? Something you guys have to ask yourselves. Jesus is a sight giver. He is the light of the world. He reveals truth. And we must be open to it. However it comes. Will you pray with me? Great God, we are grateful for the sight giver. We're grateful for the light that has been shined in the darkness, showing us the way to God. But sometimes we, we are unwilling to really listen to that. Sometimes we're so focused on ourselves that we forget that there are lots of hurting people in this world. Lots of people need you to give them sight. I pray, God, in our lives as we examine ourselves that we can be honest with ourselves and if we really are blind, if we really are shutting our eyes to the truth, that you will just come in and that you'll break down our walls and that you will show us your way. Lord, we are amazed every time that Jesus does a miracle. And I pray that we don't miss the miracles that are happening right here and now. Be our lights. It's your name we pray.